What you love loves you back. What you notice is noticing you. Honor what you love because the more you love it, the more it will open to you. And like a bee is drawn to the sweetness of a flower, incidentally, pollinates many other flowers as you follow your desire very specifically you will end up falling into your ecological niche you will end up pollinating other beings so yeah follow what you love prophecies have foretold and wisdom keepers all know that the rise of the feminine will restore balance to our world in this podcast We are on a journey to understand the root of the imbalance that has caused disconnection and dysfunction within our humanity, so we can emerge as leaders, creating a new story on Earth. I'm Lauren Walsh. And I'm Shayna Connors. With humble hearts and open minds, we will converse with spiritual teachers, historians, psychologists, revolutionaries, leaders, and healers to navigate these evolving times and reintegrate the feminine history that we have forgotten. Welcome to the Time of the Feminine podcast. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Time of the Feminine podcast. Today we have someone a beautiful someone as our guest. Her name is Sophie Strand, and I have a girl crush on her. She is a writer based in the Hudson Valley who focuses on the intersection of spirituality, storytelling, and ecology. And she's the type of nerd that we really like here on this podcast. And I can't wait to pick her brain and go deep with her. Her first book of essays, The Flowering Wand, Rewilding the Sacred Masculine will be published by Inner Traditions in fall of 2022 and is available for pre-order. So I highly recommend pre-ordering her book. If you don't know her writing, it's incredible. It is a gem of power and beauty. Uh, We found her on social media and it's such a breath of fresh air to read her work in what has become an echo chamber of thought and ideas. Hers are so original, so powerful, and so based in, in something that feels deep and ancient and modern and powerful. And her eco-feminist historical fiction, Reimagining the Gospels, The Madonna Secret, will also be published by Inner Traditions in spring of 2023. So, Sophie, welcome, welcome to the Time in the Feminine podcast. It's an honor to have you. Well, that was just an incredibly generous introduction. So thank you so much. And as I was saying before we got on, I'm just really honored to be included in what I see as a pretty resilient and densely connected community that you've fostered. So thank you for having me here and for being so sweet. Aw, you you deserve sweetness. The work you're doing is, um, I have this like a whole imagining of your life. I've, <laughs> I've geeked out on you like this. And I imagine I see you laying on the earth, weeping. <laughs> and And feeling your body and feeling mother earth and, diving into myth and diving into religion and weaving webs together to try to understand how we got here and how the pain that we feel as humans is even in your own body 
and how it's in the earth and how it connects us all and how we can unweave through creating new myths and narratives. So that is my imagining of you. And I think that's beautiful. And I would like to pass it to you. It's to your myth. It's your it's myth, myth. <laughs> It is. And so I'd love to pass the mic to you to tell us if that is true. Is that what you do? Well, I think that that's a very magical interpretation of what I do. A lot of what I do is actually like typing furiously on the computer and reading <laughs> dense, you know, primary documents that no one hasn't read, that no one has read in hundreds of years. And there's also a lot of mischief. Um, <laughs> yeah, I would say if for as much anguishing as there is, as much sorrow as you tap into when you start to wake up to your wider web of kin and what they're suffering from right now, there's also a hell of a lot of mischief mischief and foxiness when you start to collaborate with the more than human world. So lots of mischief, but also, yes, lots of sorrow. Yeah. Wow. I love what you just said, like talking about the software of our kin. Yeah. You know, like what we're plugged into the myths that we're hearing, the stories that we're believing, and then how we walk because of that as our avatar selves. Can we talk more about that? Yeah, this is kind of my my big ethos, which is that we are microbially, so we are holobionts. Holobionts are beings that are composed of other beings. So we have more bacterials and fungal cells in our body than we do human cells. And just as we are made up of um, microclimates and ecologies, so do we make up larger ecologies and lot larger beings. You know, we are all the organs and the firmament of Gaia. Um, and so we also with every breath, we breathe in the pheromone, the microbiome, the funk, the actual materials around us so that every seven to 10 years, our actual cells are reconstituted by the world, the ecosystem that we're living in. So we are in interactive intimacy, building each other in a very material way with our environment, which is kind of sexy to me in a way that is totally larger than a heteronormative coupling. Yeah. And so I've been thinking about, there's been a lot of study lately about how we've conflated minds and brains, but thinking doesn't necessarily just happen in the brain, that the brain is a kind of technology that facilitates us. It's like a radio that picks up a signal, but that thinking happens on a much wider field than just in the brain. And so there's been a lot of study, especially, um, I think there's a researcher called Michael Halassa at MIT, or I could be mixing it up. I don't have it in front of me right now, but there's been some research on, on MIT about spiders and how spiders create their webs. And they've been actually seeing that it seems as if this, the webs act as like a prosthetic mind, that the spiders store memories and information and intelligence in their webs. So mm. that actually when you damage a part of the web, the spiders act as if they've received a brain injury. And I've been thinking lately that, you know, if with every breath we are being made by the hummingbirds, by the fungi, by the trees around us, when one of those is damaged, our, our web of cognition is also damaged. That just as we can feel the pleasure of our wider web of relationality, so can we feel the pain. Um, so that we are like a spider inside a web of a multi-species intimacy. I am sitting with that interconnectedness and that thing that we talk about all the time around what is happening outside of us is happening inside of us. Yes. And how can we love or accept what's happening outside of us as if it is inside of us? And so that, you know, goes into every situation. Like yeah. even the enemies, like the the Christian teaching love thy enemy, right? That what Jesus yeah. spoke 
there's something super profound about that. And I know you have done a lot of work unpacking the myths around Jesus and everything with Christianity and bringing it into a new lens. I would love to hear about all of that. Yeah. I mean, I've always been really interested in how how does a nature-based magician, healer, storyteller, who's very anti-imperial and almost even anti-agricultural, get co-opted by the militaristic empire that killed him? How does he become a figurehead for extractive capitalism, for misogyny, for ecocide? It seems like such a strange thing. And I also am very interested about how he does seem like the last in a long line of rhizomatic vegetal gods in the Mediterranean basin that span the Neolithic and the Bronze Age into the Iron Age and like cross over through the Bronze Age collapse. And I've been very interested in how he gets enshrined as being this kind of black swan individual event, but he's actually part of a much wider web of very similar figures. And how does he interrupt that, th- that mythic structure? And how does he also reinforce it? And so the way I really work, it's interesting that I've become known for nonfiction because how I really think we do the most work is through storytelling. And what I really did was spend about five years writing a historical fiction novel, reimagining the plants, the animals, the Jewish women, the travelers, you know, coming in from all over the Roman Empire to Jerusalem, the many different types of Judaism that were all in biodiverse conversation during that time period, the practices, the cooking, the midwifery, and tried to really resuscitate the whole ecological context for the figure that would have been called Yeshua in his native tongue of Aramaic, and said, okay, how can we understand how this person could have fruited up from this context. I think the thing that is very upsetting is that his story is deracinated from most of his teachings from the earliest stratum that we have are nature-based storytelling. They're like koans, they're riddles about nature. And when you uproot it from the nature he's actually addressing, from the actual farmers and agriculturalists that he's talking to and related to, probably like by family, by blood, you lose the actual meat, the pith of these teachings. And then you translate them into the language of the very empire that killed him. You're going to lose a lot along the way. And I think that we need to be really sensitive about how myths get uprooted and then reappropriated by the cultures that uprooted them. That seems to me to be one of the ways in which imperialism undermines revolt and divergent stories. Sophie, what does it mean, vegetal gods? Oh, so there's a long history, stretching way back into like 30,000 years ago, of these dying, resurrecting gods. They're often theriomorphic, which means that they're often portrayed as having animal horns, a bull head being half snake, half animal. You see the sorceress in the Trois Frères caves in France, who, you know, is many different animals all combined. Um, you see the lion man, which is one of the oldest objects we have that shows, a, shows an imaginative act, shows human beings creating a piece of art that represents something that doesn't, quote unquote, exist in life. It's a combination of a lion and a man. And so you see these, this long history in iconography and material culture and also in storytelling and myth of these gods who are associated with animals. They're also often called Lord of the Beasts. They're very much associated with mother goddesses. They're oftentimes seen as the son of the goddess and the lap of the goddess. They're associated with bulls, bullhorns, and the moon, and with cycles. Not with linear heroes' narratives where you have a climax, you destroy the monster who's often a mother, 
and then you like abscond with the princess, they're much more associated with how the moon is mutable. It can be occluded. It can also be full. It's always both. And so lunar vegetal gods are always, you know, fruiting up, blooming, flowering, dying back, sinking into the soil to fertilize it, to lie fallow, and then coming up again. So they never get stuck. And I think that's the really interesting thing about myth is that myth was born in breath and that it was held for 99% of human history, myth was oral, which means that it was always relational, always happening between people. It took, it took context. It was always related to the exact social, ecological, cultural pressures of the time. And it disappeared as soon as you said it so that it, it showed you that everything is evanescent and everything is about connectivity about responding to the people and what they need around you and responding to the earth around you too. And so vegetal gods for me are gods that are held in breath and that let themselves be changed and move and adapt. Like the lymph in your body needs to move in order to keep everything flowing, to detoxify you, to bring in new nourishment. And I think of oral culture as keeping the lymphatic system moving of a culture. So we went through this shift where we had, you know, this more reverent culture towards the mother, towards the goddess, this like lunar era, as Anne Baring calls it. And then that shifted. Yeah. And I'm curious about, from your perspective, what happened? Well, this is something that is always going to remain a mystery. And I think it's important that we live in that question, which is we all have our theories, but part of it is just holding the undecidability of what actually happened. I have a feeling. One feeling is that the movement from oral culture to textual culture actually changes consciousness. That it changes, you go from being right brain, from being holistic, where you're always unifying things, you're seeing the big picture to the dissecting abstraction of the left brain. And when everything is held in breath, everything is seen as being an event. But when you begin to write things down, you see things as objects, as things that can be accumulated and owned. And when everything is in breath, sound is interior. It goes into your actual ears and it seems to come from within the interior of the instrument of another being. So you can think of oral culture as being a concatenation of interiorities of people who all understand that they are united by the interior experience of the other person. But sight isolates. You can read something alone without ever having to know the author and without ever being able to ask them a question. There's no relationality. So suddenly everything is abstract and alone and you can begin to think about abstractions like justice. Like what is justice actually? Where are its roots? What does it taste like? How does it function in your landscape? You know, this, you know, a lot of abstract concepts that we see begin to be born around the time that alphabetic culture really takes off in Greece. Abstract concepts and alphabetic culture seem to go hand in hand. So I think for me, there's a great book. Have you guys read The Alphabet and the Goddess by Leonard Schlein? This book is for you. This book is just, you will love it. It argues that in Earlier oral cultures, they're always goddess reverent. They're always involved in webs of kin rather than heroic individuals or single stories. It's always about a biodiversity of stories. And that as you move into alphabetic culture, you see hierarchies, you see patriarchies, you see dominator cultures, and mostly you see people think that they can start to accumulate agricultural resources and people and start to own things in a way that is very, very violent and actually begins to degrade the landscape. And so for me, I'm, I'm very interested in the movement from oral culture to alphabetic culture. 
But to pull back and to be a little bit more tender, what causes the pressure that allows for alphabetic culture to flourish? And I, what I see is that, and I've been researching this like today, this is something I'm very fascinated in, is the Bronze Age collapse. And all of these alphabetic cultures gain traction right after or during this moment where all of the, the five major empires in the Mediterranean basin fall apart. There's a huge, I actually have the timeline here right now. There's a huge eruption of the Santorini volcano in 1646 BCE that destroys Crete, the last holdout of goddess culture. And then Minoan culture falls. And by 1450, the Mycenaean Greeks, who are very much about sky gods, about war, move in and take over Crete culture and take over the last holdout of goddess culture. And so what you see is these huge volcanic eruptions, earthquakes, rising sea levels, um, fluctuating temperatures. There's also a 200-year drought in Israel that kills hundreds and hundreds of people. So what I'm interested in is the climatological pressures, that there are huge, huge ecological pressures that dislocate people from their landscapes, that kill people, and that change people's ideas of what is possible. And how do you respond to trauma? When we think of the body, we think of how the body somatizes trauma. How do cultures somatize trauma? They want a, a way to create myths that last. If the people are going to be destroyed, if the land is going to be destroyed, how do you create myths that last? Maybe you write them down. And so I've been thinking a lot about the rise of written cultures, about being a kind of trauma response to this huge collapse of Mediterranean culture. That's fascinating. It's That's fascinating. a rant. <laughs> no, thank you. Thank you. That's a wonderful theory. It's something I actually haven't heard. I'm really excited to check out that book. Yeah, it's fascinating to me the impact of when things become tangible. They become things you can accumulate versus yeah. an exchange. Like you were saying, a breath of an exchange, an energetic transmission, a, a in place, in time, in relationship. You can see it in social media. Like you have these like bits of information that don't allow for nuance or essence. Yeah. And how that's even creating more and more division. So it's fascinating. I love how you bring everything back to ecology and its relationship to everything else. It makes a lot of sense. And that feels like an aspect of the feminine reemergence is, is that reconnection with self and environment and those around us. And I'm curious, you know, the concept of hierarchy and oppression and these systems that have completely grown and thickened throughout the ages, like white supremacy and patriarchy and colonialism and imperialism and capitalism, all of this, these systems that to me feel like threads of the same ball tied into the same knot. And if you were going to pull one thread that could start to unwind all of it, what would that thread be? Well, that is a great question, by the way, and a great metaphor. So I just want to just honor that. I think the thread that I think we all have different threads to pull. And the truth is that there's no hero. It's, you know, I, I like to say that no one is coming to save us. Everyone is coming to save everyone. Like that, mm -hmm. the, the only way to do this is, is in a communal effort. But the thread that I do feel compelled to pull is Jesus. That I've always been really interested how the story that looks like a tragedy to me of a teacher killed in his prime before he gets to develop his teaching, whose death is fetishized and obscures his actual fertile sensual life, 
Um, like, how does that motivate whole civilizations of violence? And so the thread I've chosen to pull is Jesus and his story and replanting him in Galilee in his Jewish context, in his social cultural context, and just showing people how the Jesus that might have lived differs from the Jesus that is used for harm now. And so that feels to me like the thread I've been given to pull right now, at least. And it, interestingly enough, it's not the thread I would have ordered off the menu. Um, and I think a lot of us feel that it's like, you know, there are the things we think we should do. And then there are the things that bother us and we keep getting forced back to. And yeah, I, I think that I would have, I would have not chosen Jesus to be the thread I would pull, but it is, it's turned out. This way. is why I have a crush on you. <laughs> my whole, my whole body just goes, mm, thank you. Thank you. Well, it's mutual with you guys both. I mean, <laughs> With Jesus specifically, you know, I experienced Christ consciousness through psychedelics, through going to the Amazon and trying to heal my trauma. And I experienced what I guess some Christians would call born again, but completely, completely out of that context, (laughs) (laughs) like completely other world, mystical unified nature in the forest with the indigenous peoples and encountering what felt like the revelation that that teacher had had that power and not the revelation of like, oh my God, I'm enlightened, but the revelation of, oh, wow, there's a, there's an orientation that I can align myself to that feels pure and helpful, but there's all of this myth and and trauma It it like shading this gift and that orientation, aligning myself to that frequency and um, learning who I am through it has resurrected me quite literally and uh, continues to. And though I am still shedding and reprogramming the dogma of Christian religion and the shame of my, my ancestry inside my own being. Wow. Yeah. Were you raised inside of a face? Yes. Yes. Um, Yeah. My my great grandfather actually um, funded a project to excavate the the tomb of Saint Peter in in (laughs) underneath the catacombs of the Vatican. So there's there's some deep legacy there. Yeah. Wow. And Shana, what about you? I was raised Jewish, but I come from two parents. My mom's Catholic, my dad's Jewish, and I was raised in the Jewish faith. And it was always much more interpretive than it was literal, which I really appreciated. And it included a lot of meditation and an open, honest connection with God, which was, you know, the living fabric of everything. And so I still very much carry that. Were you raised in a certain religion? Well, it's interesting. So my parents are scholars and writers about religion and spirituality. My dad is an ex-Buddhist monk and my mom was a raised without religion, then converted to Catholicism, then left it, then became pagan. And now they run an interfaith group. But I was, but the interesting thing is my mother's brother married an Israeli Jew. And so I was raised with a lot of Israeli Jews around me. And those were the main holidays we celebrated. So I remember when I was three, I said to my mom, am I Jewish? And she was like, no. And I was like, oh, okay. Why are we doing this? I like it. Like, (laughs) um, so it's so interesting. I didn't come from a Christian background. I came from my parents. The gift of my parents was that they showed me that every, every religion had 
a kind of perspective and was worth respecting and that none of them was more true than the other and that we could look at them critically but also really honor them and so i think that was really helpful but it surprised my parents when i became so interested in christianity and i also think that it was helpful that i came from this ecosystem where jewish history and jewish storytelling was highlighted so that the way the lens i was looking at jesus through was very different was non-christian um mm -hmm. and i think that's the thing that people forget is that jesus was a jew seeking to reform judaism he did not think of himself as christian in fact nobody called themselves christians until about like a hundred two hundred years after jesus died people thought of themselves as jews so it's a thing that people have forgotten i mean there's so many things like i also went to the christian story and i think hmm. in part it's because there's a definite shift at that point towards a certain kind of thinking. And I think when you go and trace back patriarchy and capitalism and all these different things, again, yeah. you said this, he was used, you know, by the Roman yeah. empire to unite and to, and to create power. And then it oppressed people all over the world. Like my mom's family is South American and Jesus they went, yeah. yeah, they went to South America because of the inquisition and mo were most likely Jewish. And so, you know, my mom's last name is Santa Maria, you know, and they probably just like labeled a bunch of people that coming across and whatever they were doing. And yeah. it's just an interesting, yeah, it's an interesting path to walk down, especially as a Jew, you know, growing up, people told me many times, you're going to hell because you don't believe in Christ and all these kinds of things. And now as I've taken that story into my own life, like that myth, you know, and have related to Christ consciousness, you know, the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. It's such a different lens to yeah. see the whole story through. Sometimes yeah. when I'm connecting with people who are conventional Christians and there's like a, you know, a barrier to them understanding who I am, there is a place in Jesus that we can connect, but really they're very confused because like, is she a witch or is she a Christian? I can't tell. And I feel there's this, what this thread that you're pulling is fascinating to me. And I think it's a really important thread because like Shana was just saying with Rome and the oppression of Rome with the Christian values, it is embedded into everything. Jesus, yeah. this, this story, this distorted story, which um, actually a Gnostic Tao named Tao Malachi says that the Antichrist the actual antichrist that people talk about is actually what happened in Jesus's name. Like this horrible atrocity that happened in the name of Jesus. He calls that the antichrist, which I think is really fascinating, but that is embedded into all of these systems. So I think it's a really powerful healing because I, I see a lot of people lost and shut off from a connection to the cosmos because of the trauma of the word God and the trauma of religion and the trauma of what happened in the name of Jesus. Absolutely. I think it's been the author of some of the worst violence we've seen. Um, I mean, part of what, so I'm a storyteller and part of what I thought is, what would it feel like to be, so, so can, do you mind if I go a little fictional? Please. What does it feel like to be born as a young boy in Galilee, where when you're four years old, 2,000 women and children and men are crucified for a petty revolt? 
it was pretty much nonviolent outside your town. And you see pretty much everyone you know knows someone who's been killed. Women are raped all the time. All of your money is taken by the Romans that you um, you have to work so hard to make a living and you're, you're under constant threat of violence. And yet your people are incredibly canny storytellers and incredibly good at making compromises and being mischievous and revolting. And that there are so many different, one of the interesting things about Jesus is he's actually not that remarkable. There are many, many other uprisings by spiritual people who also practice a kind of nonviolence at that time period. And so he, he grows up in a context of seeing that there are brave, courageous people who fail when they go up against the Roman Empire and that to go up against the Roman Empire is to risk your own life. So imagine that he's seen all of, in fact, his teacher, John the Baptist, because we have reason to believe that John was his teacher, given all of the cross-references of the earliest Gnostic texts and letters, um, and Josephus, the historian, he saw his teacher murdered. Um, this is a man who's known incredible trauma, intense trauma, religious oppression, violence, um, and also a legacy of trauma through his people who have been oppressed by many, many different empires, exiled, they've come back, they've, they've resurrected their stories and their, their culture again and again and again. And he decides to he decides to go up against the Roman Empire directly to do it. Imagine what that is. And then at the very moment where he is crystallizing his teaching, where he is beginning to alchemize something ecological and nonviolent and, and incredibly anarchic, where he's saying everybody's allowed at the table. I mean, his, his, big, his big teaching was communal eating and healing. That was it. Everybody is invited and everybody heals everybody. And the minute he does that, he is murdered. And within 30 years, people don't know this, by 70 CE, probably every single person he would have known would be dead. And the temple was burned to the ground. And the last holdout of the zealots on Masada all committed collective suicide because they were forced to by the Romans. I mean, this is a level. People say that the apocalypse didn't happen, that Jesus was an apocalyptic prophet. I beg to argue that it did happen. <laughs> His entire people were killed. And then imagine the, your story, your murder, your untimely murder. I personally believe he was married to the, to the Magdalene. So he's leaving behind a wife. He's leaving behind his mother, his friends, his family. And those people are killed in his name, probably, or in the name of the empire that uses him. Then your story, the story of how your life was interrupted and violently extinguished is used by that empire for thousands of years. Imagine how, I mean, if we can imagine that this person has some kind of consciousness that exists beyond death, how, what torture, what a terrible thing to experience. And so what I always think is how can we replant this man? How can we heal this wound? How can we say, I am so sorry. This is terrible. We will not do this in your name anymore. Yeah. It's fascinating to feel it through that lens because I think in it's overtaken all of humanity, this myth, you know, it's, it's, it, I don't care where you are, but like the consciousness yeah. has seeped in everywhere. And so to, to humanize him and recently someone told me, he's like, he never called himself the son of God. Oh no, he ever. Never. 
That here's the really interesting thing. So there was a God that was called son of God, Theotokos. And that person was Dionysus, who for thousands of years had been called son of God and was supposed to come from the lap of God, of Zeus, born from the thigh of Zeus. And Jesus is not called son of God until the gospel of John, which is the, the last gospel to be written. And the one that most historical um, biblical scholars don't ha- think has any relationship to the Jesus story um, was written by someone who probably, who was writing for people in Ephesus who were probably already followers of Dionysus and knew that he wanted to convert the followers of Dionysus to Christianity. So he needed to capitalize on their language. And if you actually put Euripides the Bacchae, which is about Dionysus, next to the Gospel of John, it's a direct overlay. It's just entire chunks have been taken out and put into the Gospel of John. And so Son of God is a way of signaling Dionysian followers that they can convert to Christianity. It's not what he would have called himself. Wow, that's fascinating. I've been to Ephesus before, so I'm like feeling that energy of like how they could possibly do such a thing. But it makes, I mean, it makes so much sense. And so can we talk, because we were talking about it before the podcast, I want to talk about um, Dionysus and what you were sharing about how the masculine was always portrayed with a sword and how his story was different. Mm, Yeah. I mean, I... I think that the, the the masculine sword hero archetype is 2000 years old relatively or like late bronze age onwards and that I think masculinity and patriarchy have been unfairly conflated in a way that doesn't give men who are looking for other options a lot of places to turn and the truth is that if we look underneath this past 2000 years of patriarchy and domination there is a biodiverse root system of animus, tricky, wild masculinities that don't abide by any strict conformed sense of the hero or the individual. You know, we, we see bull gods, we see tricksters and harpists. We see masculinities that are about playing music, about speaking for birds, about going on adventures, about collaborating, about sailing, about friendship. And I, I thought that, you know, Dionysus is really interesting. He's always portrayed so he goes back, he predates the Greek Greek myths and the Olympic pantheon. He goes back to the earliest form of Greek we have, Linear B, that we first get in 1250 BCE on Crete. So he goes back to this older goddess culture where you have mostly have pictures of bees and bulls and goddess figures, and there's no pictures of heroic individuals fighting or violence. And that's where Dionysus emerges from. And so Dionysus is androgynous. He's girl-like. He's associated with fermentation and honey and sweetness. He also is uncredited with being the birth of drama. Um, there was something called the Song of the Goat, which is um, gets translated to tragedia. And it was something that was done every year at the Dionysia, which was a festival to commemorate Dionysus, that was about people would come together to air their grievances. And they would all and they would sacrifice a goat. And they would all sing to the god and say, why did you do this? Why did this happen? And that slowly over time coalesced into drama, into like actual dramaturgy. And so Dionysus is the god of, of drama. And this is a masculine inheritance. He's also the only God that's not associated with rape or violence against women. And instead, in fact, there's an incredible story that I think is such a great archetype to bring into the modern age, which is Theseus, who is a great stand-in for Greek violent sword-wheeling culture, comes to Crete. So this is actually a great overlap of the actual historical conditions where the Greeks come in and take over Minoan culture. 
comes to Crete and destroys the Minotaur and steals off with Ariadne, the princess of the labyrinth, who's the goddess figure, the ancient goddess figure. And he has sex with her. We can read underneath that, that he rapes her. And then he leaves her on the shores of Naxos. He, he just abandons her. And, you know, so patriarchal culture comes into this older goddess culture, kills the bull god, kills this older masculinity, and takes the mother goddess and rapes her. Mm. Guess who comes to save? The Ariadne, Dionysus. And he says, why would you, this is in, actually, I think this is in one of these early, I'm trying to remember who wrote this, maybe Ovid. Dionysus says to Ariadne, he says, why would you want a man when you can have a god? <laughs> And he makes her a crown that he puts in the sky as the Corona Borealis. He makes her into a goddess and they marry each other. And then they tour the entire world, bringing fermentation and wine to everyone. And so for me, Dionysus says, what, what, what does it look like when the masculine comes to, to queer people, to women, to femme, to non-binary people and says, you've been harmed. How can I heal you? How can I court you and love you and give you back your crown? And so Dionysus, I think, is just such a great example of all of the different ways that mas masculinity can explode the sterile fiction of the hero with the sword. So as someone who has dove in deep into myth yeah. and it's how it impacts our consciousness, yeah. with all that you have learned about myth... How do you orient to the cosmos? How do you orient to life and why we're here and humans' need for um, higher power? Do you believe in uh, energy that is powerful and intelligent? Or do you believe it's a structure that helps people orient? I'm just really curious because myth is fascinating. It's so fascinating how everything, our values, our ideals, they change based on our creation stories and how we understand God and us in relationship to God. And so I'm really curious about your personal relationship to earth, self, other, and God. Thank you. So I think that myth is ecologically contextual. So the way that you take care of one plant in one place will not necessarily be able to be applicable to another climate. So I think of the myth that is made for, you know, uh, Galilee 2000 years ago is not necessarily going to be ecologically relevant to the Hudson Valley in New York state where I am today. And so I think that stories are the earth talking to itself, using us as an intermediary, using us as an instrument. And it's the earth that's coming up through a certain place. That, you know, I think of my, mycelium and fungi as being a great metaphor, which is when you pour fungi into a landscape, they become underground, this filamentous, you know, thread that connects different trees and plants and creates the, the very connected tissue of the soil. They become a map of relationships. And then they fruit up as mushrooms that look superficially like individuals, but are really these reproductive flourishes that sporulate and then create more myths elsewhere, perhaps, that are carried on the wind. Um, but a mushroom is a very specific poem of a specific patch of, you know, minerals and bacteria and dead leaf matter. It's, it's a poem of a certain place. And so what I deeply believe is that 
for all of us planted in a certain place, we have a myth that we need that we need to become the instrument of. Mm-hmm. And all of those myths are connected underground. But they're all part of the same mythic mycelium. But they're going to look different coming through us in a specific place, responding to a specific time. And that's the beauty is it's the, we all come from a common root, but there's a, a efflorescence. Like we can think of evolution. Like we all share a common ancestor, like Luca, which is called the common ancestor way, way back when, but then we sprout off into diversity. And so I believe in an animating principle, the abumptious, wild, lovemaking, a kind of anarchic. I believe that matter likes to make, to get involved with other matter that we always are fusing, that the greatest biological novelty happens through symbiosis when two species converge in a lovemaking that's permanent. That's the basis of our very cells, where two simple eukaryotic cells merge. I mean, two prokaryotic cells merge to create the complex cells of us today. So we're the product of symbiotic anarchic lovemaking. So I, I, I believe that there's an eros that infuses everything, but that the eros that arrives in a myth is very specifically attending to the place where your feet are, to the place where you are standing right now. Mm. And more specifically, what you said about each one of us, I don't know your exact words, I can't, I'm paraphrasing, has a myth to create and share. I want to know more about that. So human stories have held center stage for so long. Like we're always talking about human drama, human concerns, humans fixing everything. But the truth is that stories used to be about landscapes and weather patterns and whole community, multi-species communities. And I think that right now there's so many species going extinct and experiencing incredible impingement and harm that I like to think of Orpheus and how Orpheus becomes a mouthpiece for other species that he plays the music that can move stones, that can move birds, the mountains. And that this is a time to become a mouthpiece for other species, to let yourself be, become a mouth for the more than human. And that there are stories that need to be shared right now in the human community that are not about the human community. And those, those beings don't have human language, so they need to use us as an intermediary. And so what I like try to encourage people to do is a deep listening to who you are in very specific mythic relationship with. And I think it's not about the charismatic rainforest a, a continent away. It's about the being that shows up insistently to you every day. I mean, my joke is that for me, it was a groundhog, a woodchuck, the same, called the same thing. I was having woodchucks arrive to me all the time. And I thought, is this really it? This is not a very sexy being to be involved with and to be responsible for. And, but the more that they arrived, the more I realized, oh, we all have a being that we need to start listening to and learning from and channeling. Yeah. My last thing is, you know, there are birds that are the last of their species. There's one in Hawaii. I think it's called the Kawaiyo bird. And you can look it up on YouTube. It will break your heart. And it was the last of its kind singing a mating song. And the mating song has open spaces waiting for the, the woman bird to respond. And you hear this bird singing this song, and then there's the empty space. And there is no other bird who ever arrived to fill it. And it's the, it is, I mean, 
my body feels like it's going to break when I listen to that. And I think it is our responsibility to step into those voids that we have created through extinction and sing back Mm -hmm. and to fill those voids and to create multi-species symbiotic collaborations with our myths. My heart hurts when you share that story of the last song of this little sweet black bird. I am currently homesteading and I'm planting things in the ground and I'm, you know, doing my best to make this place where I live a garden, you know, an abundant garden with, with different species. And yesterday I just, you know, I put topsoil over this really bare ground and I can feel the life being infused. It's such an interesting thing to take care of life and to to really put your essence into nourishing it. And so I really appreciate you sharing that because I do think the interrelationship amongst beings, like I've, I've many times had the realization, I am an ecosystem. Yeah, I have billions of organisms inside of my gut. Like how could I, how could I think that I was this solitary thing? You know, I think it's really important for us to remember that. And, and also to, to remember that because of that, almost like responsibility. Like, how do you want to be in harmony with that, which is abundant within you? (laughs) And then you are a microbe in some other large cosmos. So you ask like, how do I, how do I respond to the cosmos? Lauren, that's what you ask. I am cosmos woven into larger cosmos. And I can feel that there's an interplay between those two things. And I think that when we feel paralyzed and scared, we can just say, I am this complex, I am recycled matter from the big bang. You know, I could be built from carbon that once passed through a hummingbird. Like I, I am held. Yeah. Okay. I, I have a personal question for you because I'm so yeah. curious about your creativity and the magic that you have within you. What do you do to take care of yourself, to channel your magic, to, <laughs> you know, to really just become who you are? Yeah. How, how do you get into you? the mischief? <laughs> how do I get into the mischief? Well, I think I was you know, it sounds like you guys come have had your own fair share of trauma and violence and, and contending with really intense stuff. So yeah, I was, I've been shoved into certain things by unpleasant experiences, but how do I attend to the mischief? I try and be outside as much as possible. And, um, and this is difficult, you know, I have disabilities. So sometimes I say to people with disabilities, sometimes I am confined to bed and I have to be like, okay, my sit spot is the feral ecosystem of my own body today. Like (laughs) I am going to think about the bacteria in my belly button because that is where we are. (laughs) So I try and just always have a sense of humor about limitations and how they open and close. But I like to go outside and be open to surprises, to have a certain walk or place that I go consistently enough that I'm intimate with it like a lover. And I notice when it does something new. I'm like, oh, you're you're a new fellow here. Like, what what, what are you up to today? Yeah. So I, I think it's more, it's about courtship with the world, being playful, not taking it too seriously. And also, I'm a great believer that the greatest signs come as, you know, license plates or, you know, a bad song you hear through a passing car. I think the universe has a sense of humor. I, I deeply believe that there is a Dionysian sense of humor that infuses everything. I think you're a fairy. I think you guys are fairies too. (laughs) Definitely a fairy. When I was in Ireland, I was like, oh, fairies are real. And now I'm talking to one. You're a fairy. (laughs) Well, we we share the Irish ancestral lineage with the fairy people. I was just writing about fairies, right? Actually, um, and the Tuatha Du Danann of of Ireland. I don't know enough about them. Yeah. Cool. I I look forward to reading it. So Sophie, 
Thank you for being the mischievous, beautiful, bubbly, smart as hell, fun woman that you are. It's been such a lovely conversation. And we ask all of our guests the same question at the end, and you've listened to a couple episodes, so maybe you know. If you in this moment could channel the great mother, Pachamama herself, and she would have a message for all of us, what would she say? What you love loves you back. What you notice is noticing you. Honor what you love because the more you love it, the more it will open to you. And like a bee is drawn to the sweetness of a flower, accidentally, incidentally, pollinates many other flowers. As you follow your desire very specifically, you will end up falling into your ecological niche. You will end up pollinating other beings. So yeah, follow what you love. Thank you so much, Sophie. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you guys so much for everything you do and for such a thoughtful, thoughtful conversation. Thank you. Mm, can you share how people can find you? Yeah, you can find me on Instagram at Cosmogony, which is my take on female created cosmos. <laughs> C-O-S-M-O-G-Y-N-Y. I have a Substack, sophiestrand.substack.com. And yeah, and sophiestrand.com. I have a bunch of books coming out and I like to give, I like, it's really important to me to give away work for free because we're all starving artists. And so I offer a lot of writing for free and I love to be changed and changed and risk being changed by my readers. So come and bother me. Mm, cool. Thanks, Sophie. Thank you guys so much. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Time of the Feminine podcast. And if you'd like to learn more about the Global Sisterhood, you can follow us on Instagram at the Global Sisterhood, or you can tune in to one of our programs. Just go to globalsisterhood.org. It is such a privilege and such an honor to speak with all these amazing women and to continue to speak with you. If you would like to join one of our circles or programs and dive in deeper and have these conversations yourself with us, we would love to invite you in deeper, sister. So just go to globalsisterhood.org to learn more. Okay, talk to you next time.